0: What a pleasure it is to welcome Reed Hoffman to the stage. I think probably people introduce you as the founder of LinkedIn all the time, but I also want to introduce you as full-time venture capital partner of Greylock. Welcome to the <laughs> stage. Great, the most important reason for you to be here is I'm really tired of trying to explain blitzscaling to everybody (laughs) because he's written this wonderful book and there's a great presentation on SlideShare and I've been prophetizing it through every company. It's a wonderful read. Tell us
1: in your own words what blitzscaling is. So the first sentence will seem very geeky and then I will unpack it. It's prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. And what that means is actually, in fact, you want to be the first to scale by a very long margin. You're going to do a bunch of things that are inefficient. Inefficient in capital, inefficient with people, inefficient in hiring in order to achieve that speed to scale. And the environment of uncertainty is you may be doing this in a place where you don't understand any of the basics of your business. You may not understand unit economics. You may not understand customer acquisition cost. You may not understand uh, you know, kind of like what your operating margin is. But because your business is targeting network effects, a scale effect, you're in a competitive uh, space where one of the things we call, this is actually a, probably a nod to, the, to an LA uh, sort of thing, Glen Gary, Glen Ross markets, uh, where you know, the first prize is a Cadillac, second prize is steak knives, and third prize is you're fired. The speed to scale and the speed to getting in that market is what's key. And the book is about a, a set of the techniques that I've seen um, developed in Silicon Valley Uh, and also, of course, uh, China. So, let's unpack blitzscaling a bit. Mm.
0: I like to tell most founders that I work with is there's a tension between growth and profits, Mm. and if you're going for profits, it's really hard to grow because it takes resources. But you earn the right to grow by doing something extraordinary that frees up the capital markets. If the capital markets don't support you, blitzscaling is a pretty bad strategy, isn't it?
1: Yes, you can't, uh, there's basically no blitzscaling without blitz capital. Okay. <laughs> All right, blitz capital can come through revenue in the very rare case, like Google and AdWords, yeah. but most often comes in through scalable capital that goes, you have an extraordinary possibility here and we're willing to bet hundreds of millions of dollars even billions of dollars when we still don't know some of the basics of business so i have been
0: fortunate enough to back some companies that are doing the split scaling and even in the most successful businesses i've seen even in companies growing at superhuman rates when we talk to downstream investors that are used to more rational metrics from public markets that are increasingly in the private markets, they're still a little bit stuck on unit economics and money that was wasted capturing winner take most. Hmm. How do you think about
1: that? Like the growth market and how to communicate? So the key thing is to, and by the way, uh, you don't necessarily need every investor to believe you, you just need a few of the right investors to believe you. And so uh, the key thing is to say, well, do you believe that there's this possibility of this extraordinary market position that will be uh, won by who gets there first? Then everything else comes down to the speed of getting there. And so, for example, if you're focused on, well, I actually have to understand uh, my unit economics, I have, to stand under, I have to be growing my operating margin, I have to be doing these things, which are all things that are taught in very smart business schools, yeah. <laughs> right. and if I'm doing that, I'm going to be moving slower. And, and the first to that scale essentially gets the Cadillac. And if you'd have investors that don't believe you, you wouldn't want those investors in your boat anyway because one of the things is, you know, we know as professional investors is, if you have an investor rocking the boat, that's a really good way to have the boat not get to where it should be going. For sure. What about
0: the ethical issues around blitz scaling? I think in the last decade, we've all observed some behavior, at least that the market has questioned
1: about techniques of blitz scaling. So there's this tension, right? Tension is absolute speed because the first to scale is actually in fact, you know, the player that will be a winner take most market. Mm. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that matter. The things that matter about, you know, how you deal with your employees, how you deal with the customers, how your interface to the society is. So another reason why I wrote the book was to have essentially a chapter on the, kind of the, the baselines for how to do responsible blitzscaling. scaling which is to start figuring out what are the risks that actually, in fact, could have a really bad impact on individuals or on a group of people or on society. And then as you are building, because part of what happens in in a blitz-scaling company, you start with a single-threaded organization, which is, if a startup isn't single-threaded, you have a problem as your startup. (laughs) And then you move to a multi-threaded organization where you're doing many things. Well, one thing to start doing is to start saying, okay, let me identify these risks and let me start figuring out uh, how do I m- measure it? How do I uh, steer away from it? If it starts happening, how do, I, how do I heal it? How do I fix it? And so you add that into your blitzscaling process without slowing down, right? Because the key thing is not to slow down. So
0: I'm gonna pivot to a different conversation, but on SlideShare, there's a great blitzscaling presentation. Mm-hmm. I have bored every partner at Upfront. I have bored every founder Hopefully not boring, America. but yes. <laughs> I, I bored them with, emailing him too much to make sure that they're really getting their heads around this. AI. Yes. There's really two schools. There's all the big companies investing in it. Google, Facebook, Twitter, otherwise. And then there's Elon. (laughs) Yes. And Elon seems to be worried about the ethical implications of
1: AI. Where are you on AI? So, Frequently, when people say, "Ask me this question," which is, "What's the uh, what technology uh, fills you with the most hope for what can happen with humanity, and which technology most concerns you?" The answer is the same. Okay, right. So AI is one of those. Uh, synthetic biology is another one. Right. So it's not just only AI. Nuclear, by the way, we have this induction. Oh, oh nuclear is all safe, and it's like, ah, pay attention to North Korea, um, and so. I think that the, the key question is here is, in a, in a lot of unknowables, how do we steer from dystopic outcomes towards utopic outcomes? What are the things we know? What are the things we need to do? And within AI, there's two bands that I really focus on this. One, the more obvious and immediate one is work, right? So uh, what's happening with job and work replacements, so where then how do you actually have this be a place where we're creating a, a better society that's still inclusive while we're going through all the automation? And then the other one is, uh, kind of like uh, life, like, you know, this is, you know, kind of classic Terminator or, you know, most uh, science fiction on this is all the dystopia versus the utopia. And, uh, and how do we have those be uh, kind of like a, um, a good outcome for humanity? And I think both, I'm fundamentally a techno-optimist, not a utopian, which is, you know, technology doesn't naturally lead to utopia, but you can use technology to, to, to a, a great and optimistic future. You just have to shape it. So I'm a believer that's possible with AI, and I'm putting a lot of energy into making that happen. Um, So Elon and I argue every so often on this topic. Although um, we also, as part of uh, those discussions and arguments, uh, help set up OpenAI to try to actually be one of the catalytic forces uh, within this. So Elon, Sam Altman. some
0: of it good governance, having governments that understand the mm -hmm. implications on both workforce Mm -hmm and also making sure we have an informed society that people aren't able to be exploited?
1: Well, I'm reminded a little bit of, uh, in the theory of good governance, I'm reminded a little bit of when Mahatma Gandhi was asked, what did he think about Western civilization? And he said, I think it would be a good idea. Um, And, and, you know, like, okay, yes, I would love to have good governance, and good governance would make a very big difference here. Um, And I suspect that many of the folks in the audience know that uh, 2016 was the time that I actually stopped just writing checks and went on, you know, the Daily Show and a bunch of things and campaigned against Trump because it was the only thing I could think of to do because I think I refer to it as the Trumpocalypse. Uh, And so I'm, you know, I think that's the the good governance and Trump. Yeah. Like there is no mixture. Uh, And so, um, but I do think with good governance, you could actually, in fact, Get, like, For example, when you get to the work issue, I'm fundamentally optimistic that we'll actually figure out a way to create a bunch more middle class jobs. But even with that optimism, you have a transition period. Just like the industrial revolution when you moved to agrarian to industrial, there was a lot of suffering yeah. in between those periods as we're sorting it out. Sorting through that period and making that human and making that inclusive is super important. And it's very hard to do without an intelligent government you like learning, working, forming a policy, etc. Now, in order to do that, you'd have to like, for example, if you were in the White House, you'd have to actually staff the OSTP. Yeah. You'd actually have to have people doing it, yeah. right? Uh, let alone like the, the care about governance to create a policy. Yeah. So yes, in theory, uh, and maybe, maybe that theory is 2020. Okay.
0: Well, thank you to Reed
1: for all he does
0: to have good governance in our country. Um, Robots, Hmm. Boston Dynamics. I think everyone's seen those scary videos. And I just think about those attack dogs running around armed with some AI army that they take over. Where are you on robots in general and robotics for factory automation?
1: So uh, robotics for factory automation, I think is ultimately a good thing. Like for example, when you look at The Amazon factories that get automated, they actually employ more people. Now it's maybe less people per unit of product output, but a lot of people are still employed in those because that actually creates a work center and people are more flexible in various ways. So I actually, in in fact, broadly think robotics is very good. And when people say to me, well, you know, should we regulate robots? Uh, one of the first things they say is, well, are you talking about American robots, Chinese robots, or German robots? <laughs> right. which, which robots are you talking about? Yeah. And part of the reason I ask that question is to have them focus on, oh yeah, we'd like to have American robots. Yeah. Right? That would be a good thing. Uh, because then, that means we're in the game. Uh, it may uh, help uh, rejuvenate manufacturing in a lot of ways. There's a lot of very good things about it. Now, there is a lot of worry about uh, uh, robots in armies. And I think that's a legitimate worry, uh, especially as you get to more and more dangerous weapons about like where you have humans in the loop or not. But actually I'm much more concerned about cyber war and AI than I am about robots. So I read an article that you wrote
0: and I love when you challenged me to think about a topic that I maybe came from one angle and you from a different, Mm. big tech companies, Mm. There's a lot of pushback in our country right now to have smaller tech companies break things up. You wrote an article in which you were arguing that if we're gonna try to break up Facebook or Twitter or other social networks and make them smaller, that you're just gonna see big companies abroad that will grow bigger and more dominant. And if I remember it correctly, a fear that if you're not big enough you can't actually respond to the f- threats from foreign interests. Can you talk a little bit about
1: that? Yep. So so obviously, you know, uh, a lot of turmoil, uh, a lot of concerns about like my, my model, you know, taking the blitzscaling models, once these companies get to a certain size, they also ha- should now add society as a customer. And how do you do that, and how do you actually not just function on the behaviors of each individual, you know, monitoring what they're doing, but also say, and here is how society is our customer. And I think that becomes a stage in the scale growth. And I think as you begin to do that, I think that will begin to shift uh, a lot of the negative impacts uh, to potentially even more positive impacts, like how do we get more truth and discourse, how do we tone down hate speech, how do we do other kinds of things like that. I actually think the platform could enable us to do that and actually it's much stronger, this is your second part of your question, when you have big platforms that can invest in artificial intelligence, like monitoring and saying, oh, that looks like abuse speech, I'm not going to promote that, I'm not gonna share that, even though that the algorithm may say that once it has 23 likes, I should start putting it in the news feeds, that one I'm not going to do, right? right. <laughs> right you know, that kind of thing, and then that could affect the overall tone, which you can both do by investing in the technology, which is very expensive, applying it across a wide range of discourse, which then has a positive kind of social impact. Now, on the other side, on the kind of the reason why I think uh, breakups are uh, a, generally speaking, wrong tool, is that all of these tech companies are now global companies. Ours, uh, others, and there's a lot of areas in the world where they won't break up their big tech companies. China is a key example. And so you say, well, we had all this problem with filter bubbles and, and other kinds of like truth and information on Facebook, where we're worried that uh, people are not actually getting the information that uh, allows them to kind of understand what the truth is. Well, okay, we have an ability to correct that system here with Facebook, if it was WeChat that it was all running on, we'd have zero ability to do that. So we live in a multipolar world now. And so you have to rethink about these things as not that there shouldn't be some way of saying, look, we are, as society, your customer, you need to help make our society and other societies better. You need to figure out how to not have, because, you know, the, like the subtle things are, uh, I get really angry and I spend a lot more time, so then, oh, my algorithm to get you to spend more time is, oh, if I get you angry, you'll spend a lot more time. No, not that, (laughs) right? So you need to have ways to balance it out, and the way to think about it is, what kind of dashboard would you have of saying, we're making progress with society as a customer, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be getting towards. So, I wanna shift to autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. I think most of
0: the room accepts that at some end point, let me just pick a far out end point, 20 years, the idea of cars driving us and not having people distracted with texting or alcohol or whatever would be a great outcome. If you had all autonomous vehicles, we'd need fewer vehicles because they could actually be shared rather than used 5% of the time but it seems really difficult to imagine how we get there in the transition where there are a small number of cars and there's still humans on the road. What is your perspective on how the industry takes, where's it gonna go?
1: So, so actually one of my investments at Greylock is a company called Naudo, which is how do you make driving safer for humans? So in addition to investing in these really interesting autonomous vehicle companies, Aurora and Neuro, well (laughs) no, no hedging, it's an overall picture, right? Because precisely you say, uh, we're not going to wake up, you know, two years from now, and have all autonomous vehicles. Yep. One, you have to get the AV stuff right. There's a bunch of stuff that you need to, you still happen there. Two, manufacturing the scale. Like, even if every factory in the world started manufacturing AV vehicles, you still have 10 years. Yeah, to by replace just, by, you're like, cars, yes, yeah. right. So Yes, right? So, there's a, and then, you know, kind of what happens with liability? What happens with and people who have cars? Can you talk about this company? What does it do? The company designed so, to help So, now use. though, what it does is it says, okay, let's put, and it starts with commercial vehicles as a, as a function and making insurance cheaper and safety is like, let's have a two-directional camera, so as opposed to just beeping at you when you're like coming up on something that stopped, it beeps at you when there's something you're not seeing. You're distracted by your phone, you're something else, right. and it goes, there's a car, there's something coming from, from the right, beep, pay attention. Yep. So when it beeps, it never cries wolf. There's always a wolf there, okay? <laughs> right? So you're like, okay, I know now, I know now to pay attention. Um, you know, various uh, uh, Uber and other drivers have actually discovered that made it, it like one of the, the, the videos that I saw was a taxi driver was using this, got struck in the back of the head by a passenger, blacked out, all, all the taxi driver knew was he blacked out and he kind of ran into a wall, and it wasn't until they reviewed it they went, oh, you were hit. Right. Right. And so it makes a safer environment and and you do all the privacy and GDPR things and all the rest of it. But it could actually take over the car in that No, 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 no. It's it's, it's helping the driver. Okay. It's helping the driver. So let's
0: combine AI and autonomous vehicles. Yesterday we had Kai-Fu Lee Mm. present talking about the future of AI. Mm. Um, I met with Kai-Fu and he gave me a premise for where he thinks things are going and I'd love your response. He said at some point he believes China is gonna take a province, let's say 150 million people. They're gonna look at the actuarial tables and they're gonna say how many people drive as a result of bad driving today? How many will die if we switch the entire province based on software errors or algorithms learning? And they will deem that an acceptable risk to take. And what he said to me is he believes China will massively leapfrog the US because of our morass of regulation. And number two is, the most important thing to make AI better is huge volumes of data. And he said that province of constantly capturing camera, LiDAR, and everything else is gonna give them such an advantage in AI that he thinks over the next 10 years, they're gonna leapfrog us. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in that.
1: Which part do you wanna unpack? So, look, I broadly think that there is this interesting thing about, if you say, what are the interesting future AI technologies gonna come from? It's going to be a combination of the U.S. tech companies and China. And there's different strengths in that. And Kai-Fu was making the Chinese argument, which is, we uh, have regulation that's going to accelerate us versus slow us down. We're going to have uh, complete access to a whole bunch of data. So. The even more scary companies are things like SenseTime and other things yeah. where they're literally tracking your face everywhere you go Social through the city. Um, if you uh, are looking to get uh, uh, pa- papers uh, and you're a, a minority like the Uyghurs, you have to do a 360 headshot and a gait analysis, so they can look at any video in the world and see who you are. I mean, it's it's. Uh, concerning stuff. <laughs> right. And so there's all that which will accelerate their, um, their efforts. Like yeah. there will be there's a set of things in the development of these technologies that Chinese companies and Chinese efforts will have a privileged position on. On the other hand Um, I think one of the good things is we have, you know, depth of relationship with universities, uh, long-standing deep tech platforms, uh, the free society ability to have people who say, well, I actually want to be thinking about these ideas and creating things. So we have a set of things, too. And what we would like to do in this, because one of the things I worry about is a full-on race with less concern for safety. What I'd like to do is say, okay, how do we make this so that it is best for humanity? A little bit less... China wins, a little bit less, US wins, and more like the output is good for us, right? And so there's been a set of efforts that I've been working on, that open AI is one of them. Yeah. And um, I think it's, you know, as per the earlier thing about steering to utopia and away from dystopia, that's one of the things to do. Now, that being said, we're going to see amazing and terrifying things on AI coming from China, partially because they're already building AI cities where they put cameras and monitors everywhere and have the whole thing run that way. They'll have autonomous vehicles only in those in those cities. Um, on the other hand, you know, like uh, a lot of the most interesting autonomous vehicle stuff right now is basically, you know, the vast majority of it's on you know in Silicon Valley. I mean, the vast majority is on the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, so that also may be a factor in. How does it get constructed? Does it have the right kind of safety things? Does it care about, like, what is the question about how do you value human life appropriately?
0: Yesterday, we had Senator Scott Weiner, state senator in California, talking about housing policy. Mm. We have a shortage of three and a half million houses. Uh, He described a world in which lower income to middle income people can't get to their jobs because there's no affordable housing. How are you thinking today about the San Francisco Bay Area more broadly in terms of ability to attract and retain talent when housing is so
1: expensive? So it's definitely a challenge. Um, It's one of the reasons why in the tech industry the comp goes up, the comp goes up and of course it makes it challenging for all the people who are not in the tech industry and you get, you know, pain and tensions there. One of the things about the housing in the Bay Area that I find so frustrating is there's actually a well-proven, decades-old, simple thing, which is build up. Yep. Build taller buildings, right? And allocate more of that to affordable housing, that's great. you probably know this, but
0: what he said on stage was because of NIMBYism, not in my backyard, If you make local policy, nobody ever votes to build up, yes. and you need statewide
1: policy if we're really yes. going to solve this. Exactly. No, and that it's precisely it's actually a selfish political problem. Yeah. Which is no. Actually, in fact, to make this work and inclusive, and for example, to create affordable housing for you know firefighters, you know uh, police officers, you know um, people working in various in, in, you know industries that are, which make the whole city run. No, they shouldn't have to commute. Three hours away yeah they should be able to live here near here you
0: got to build up as you're making your investments into startups and we know that a lot of the dollars are going into the Bay Area what other markets are you excited about not even necessarily investment dollars but hubs of innovation of great talent
1: uh, well I uh, definitely like LA. Otherwise, like you know, my my times under yes, my times in demand. I <laughs> wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> Thank you. That's part of the reason I was delighted to accept. Um, uh, I would say that in the U.S., I probably pay as the most attention to LA, New York, and Seattle. Are mm-hmm. probably there's also, of course, Austin, and you know, there's still some like health medical stuff in Boston is super- superlative. Um, and then what I tend to look for is where are the really interesting corner cases um, you know kind of globally right so like one of my investments uh, at Greylock a couple years ago was this thing called Entrepreneur First which is uh, and it's partially because they're literally adjunct to DeepMind, which is the leading AI thing in the world. Yep. And they're essentially creating a B2B incubator in London. Right. And so, and then Demos and Mustafa and Shane said, hey, we'd love to invest in that because the people who say that I don't want to work at DeepMind but want to do something entrepreneurial, we'll steer them there. Yep. So that's creating all kinds of interesting tech. So it's more of these kind of as less of a, it's just this whole ecosystem, but there's something that anchors a particular growth. One of the things we've been excited about is
0: Toronto, mm-hmm. not just University yeah. of yes, Waterloo, of but with immigration policy yep. as yeah. it is in the US. Yeah. It's an opportunity for people who want to be adjacent to US markets with amazing talent that's a little bit lower cost and some of these amazing people just can't get work papers to be here. Yeah,
1: 100%. Look, Canada like, you know, uh, leaders of the free world, you know, Trudeau, yeah. Macron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, uh, Canada is doing this exactly the way that we should be doing this, which is to say, look, we have this awesome country, we want uh, people to come here, build amazing technology, build amazing businesses. And okay, so the U.S. is talking about building a wall, come here, we're very welcoming. It's, like, they're, they're playing it exactly the way they should be playing it. <laughs>
0: Any thoughts on what we can do there? Any thoughts on what we can do? Because 2020 you know, regime change. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, okay. <laughs> Look, I would love that. I would totally love that. Focus on 2020. Yeah. What, what was it they said? I missed. Now. Now. Okay. Yes. Look, I would, I would
0: love that, but yeah. No. Uh, You know, I've been reading the writings of Thomas Friedman, who's Mm -hmm. saying, like, stop complaining about things now, mobilize for elections, because elections have consequences nationally, statewide, locally, so it really matters. What technology areas that are a little bit less obvious than AI or robotics or autonomous vehicles are you or Greylock at large focused on?
1: So in the, um, so we always have a, a centralized practice on consumer, yeah. right? So, you know, in our history, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, uh, also on enterprise. Um, so like one of the, the, uh, kind of the interesting, like, uh, enterprise companies, blitzscale too. So rubric okay. fastest growing enterprise software company, basically kind of time machine for enterprises. Okay. And so, um, and, and these, uh, uh, and these are our core kind of you know, consumer and enterprise practice then when we get to emerging tech Which is how we think about you can think of it frontier tech deep tech. There's all kinds of different words uh, in addition to uh, AI and AV we also look at crypto yeah. a lot with uh, Coinbase Zappo uh, were two of the uh, the early bets we made um, We're investigating looking at synthetic biology just because we think it's coming I don't know like we don't have the expertise yet to be smart and one of the classic things on Investing is if you can't spot the sucker, you are the sucker, so, right. so you want to have an informed mind, be knowledgeable, be able to sort that out. I think it's from poker, if you yes. don't know who the sucker at yes. the table is, it's you. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, um, and then you know, we, we stay alert to the things that might surprise from you know, AR, um, augmented reality, uh, and, other, uh, and other areas there. But we've done a fair amount in AV and crypto. And we're kind of paying attention to all the other areas. And of course, in the crypto
0: realm, we started all obsessed with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of broke, where you had like cryptocurrency and blockchain. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on blockchain as an enabling technology? Are you guys investing heavily there? Uh,
1: we've invested some, okay, uh, and uh, principally. So I wrote this article. I gave this talk at Davos in 2014 on on crypto. And the Wired uh, editor for the UK asked me to write this article. I wrote this article in 2015. Which is I call it crypto capital uh, for C A P cap currency asset platform, and the interesting thing is how they come together. So the natural order is A C P, which is an asset. It's like the replacement of gold. Yep. It has value. You then has currency and transaction, and then it's a platform. The platform is obviously the most interesting thing because yep. then you actually have this entire new internet of of essentially value exchange, right? And that is stunning and should exist, which is the thing I was essentially arguing. Like it might be Bitcoin, it might be blockchain, it might be a new protocol or derivative, but there will be one or more of these things. It is certain. It's just a question of how and when. And
0: in terms of venture capital, We did a little data yesterday. We were looking at this charming little cottage industry we all had in the 90s, where Ah. some of the the best funds, Greylock, XL, Kleiner, Sequoia, were like $150 million funds. We now have the SoftBank Vision Fund, $100 billion. Uh, We now have Sequoia raising $8 billion. What do you think's going on in our industry? Is it a good thing, is it a bad thing?
1: Well, so I think it's a good thing that more capital goes towards building new technologies, new businesses, uh, because that's where the jobs of the future will come, that's where productivity of the future comes. So, capital, generally speaking, going into entrepreneurial efforts is for society a very good thing. It makes our jobs more difficult. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it's less easy for us and that's because you know the problem is you get this compression, overfunding of companies, uh, more money than there is exits. You have to be you have to you have to be more selective. You have to really kind of pile into the things that really make a difference in what you're doing. You have to very very informed mind about which technologies, which efforts will really work. But but overall for the system, you think it's a healthy thing creative destruction. I, well, if you kind of said, well we're, capital is going to go somewhere. Where should it go? More capital and entrepreneurship and technology is ultimately good for us. Last question. You were very vocal about
0: inclusion and gender parity and the movement of Time's Up. We had Lisa Borders and Stacey Abrams out earlier. What do you think the state of play is now and what should we as an industry be doing to force change?
1: So the good news is I think we've hired more Women GPs in venture in the last year than it had like like than it had ever been done before. That's, yeah. that's, yes, exactly. But it's, it, it's, sadly, it's 70 percent went to nine. No, no, exactly. It's, it's the right direction. Yeah. It's a first step. Yeah. Right. You need the next the next hundred steps. Yeah. Right. So it's stay on it and do it, and and accelerate to where we're going. And I think that's the good news. Right. The bad news is it's still most often you say, well, okay, that. That, you, know, you, you list out a bunch of venture firms and you're like, well, they have between zero and one, yeah. you know, female investing yeah. partners, like, okay, that needs to change. But you spoke
0: out, you were vocal. Yes. How does that feel? Because I know you can't speak out with some amount of maybe not saying the right thing or being attacked. What advice well, would you
1: have to one men? One of the things I loved about my partners is, so what happened is this information article came out yeah. and said there was this... Um, Oh yeah, we're on camera, so I won't say bad words. Yeah, There was this particular. You can say we'll edit it out. <laughs> okay, there's this there's this particular VC who's operating as a predator on women entrepreneurs. True, and the next day was crickets in social media. I'm like, oh my god, this is the exact wrong message. This is terrible. And so I got up early morning, you <laughs> know, wrote this thing saying, look, we all need to stand against this, and we need to you know, eject LPs, eject GPs, eject firms. We need to say you know, uh, go against this, right, diversity pledge. And it was, a, it was shaped, it literally took just the information from this awesome information article and shaped it as a social media, you know, kind of like explosion. Yeah. Uh, and then when did it. I emailed my partner and so said, like, look, well, you know, I, 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 I don't stand by myself. I literally got back from all of them, go, 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 go. Okay. Like, go immediately. We yeah. understand this is going to raise issues and everything else, but it's super important. This is where we need to stand. And it made me feel very proud of my partner. Thank you for
0: speaking up. How about a big hand for Reed Hoffman? Thank you for doing that.